The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Good morning. How's everyone doing? Good. Praise God. I'm excited to be here with you. Uh, I'm Pastor Vince. If you don't know that, I do a lot of the Bible teaching here at Love City Church, and that's my primary uh, objective this morning. Please turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 14. We're going to be looking today at verses 53 uh, through 72. We're continuing in our series through the book of Mark. It's called Servant King. Uh, We are here in the book of Mark, at least in part because in our day, there's a lot of confusion about who Jesus really is, and the importance of truly knowing him uh, really cannot be overstated. And so it's part of why we're here in this gospel and have been for quite some time. Uh, Last week, Pastor Jordan uh, covered the events between the Last Supper and the arrest of Jesus on the Mount of Olives. Um, I I heard from several people that he spent uh, quite a bit of time on verse 51 Uh, which talks about a young man uh, juking the soldiers when they grabbed his outer garment and then running through the woods in his birthday suit. Uh, The fact that he spent that much time about it, we've had a few meetings, and so we're working through that, Uh, and it's going to be all right. But uh, in in all seriousness, he did a masterful job walking us through a long and weighty section of Scripture last week. So if you missed that, I would really encourage you to go back, uh, watch the video, or, or listen to the audio. Both are available. Okay, uh, this week we're going to see the events directly following the arrest of Jesus. Uh, so we're going to see a sham trial, and we're going to see the lens focuses in on how Peter reacts to all of this towards the end of uh, our set of verses today. So let's let's read these, and, and we'll feast upon God's word together. Okay. <clears throat> So I'm starting in verse uh, 53. They led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I'll build another made without hands. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? Why is it that these, what is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and say say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, 
You also were with Jesus the Nazarene, but he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. And he went out onto the porch. The servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, this, this is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. But he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you're talking about. Immediately a rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him. Before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. Praise God for his word. Amen. Okay, starting in, in 53, let's, let's work through this. So the first thing we need to do is to understand kind of what's going on in 53 and 54. We're going to have to take a minute and, and kind of unpack this because Mark focuses, focuses in on one section, kind of what happens here. But through a, a kind of harmonious look at all of the Gospels, we understand that this trial, and, and the, the fingers here are appropriate, uh, because it was really a sham. This trial, it, it really had three phases, okay? And so Mark only focuses on, on the second portion, but we know from the other Gospels that the first thing that happened is the soldiers took Jesus from the Mount of Olives is they took him to Annas' house. And Annas was the high priest from 6 AD to 15 AD, okay? And so that means he wasn't here. Uh, his son-in-law Caiaphas is actually high priest uh, during this time that we're reading about now. But Ennis retained a high level of influence uh, within the community of the Sanhedrin and uh, the, the Jewish leaders of that time, okay? So he was still a power player, so to speak. So uh, first he went to Annas's house. Annas got a crack at him, okay? And then what we read about today is the second phase, and that's a, a nighttime trial, okay? And what you need to know about that is that was illegal by Jewish law. Shouldn't have happened, Okay? Uh, which kind of is why there's a third phase to some degree. There's a daylight trial then uh, before the Sanhedrin that uh, you, you can read about in other gospels. So, but this nighttime trial with Caiaphas uh, is, is the one that we're, we're seeing the details about here from Mark. Okay, so and it's interesting. Next week, we're going to read about the official Roman sentencing process uh, which was also done in three phases. And this can be kind of confusing. As you read through the Gospels, it's like, okay, they arrest him. Seems like there's Jewish leaders and Romans there. And then they go, and he's like before the, he's at Annas' house. He's, then there's this nighttime thing. He's before the Sanhedrin. And then he goes to Pilate, and then he's with Herod. What, like, what is the deal? What, what is all of this about? Well, part of what we may not know just from the text is that the, the Jewish leaders of the time, they had the right by Roman law to say that Jesus was worthy of death, they could, they could pronounce that upon him, but they could not carry out the execution by Roman law. That was reserved for the Romans. So that's why first he's dealing with, you know, he's tried by the Jewish leaders, and then he's sent to the Roman officials, uh, and that then they, you know, we'll get to that next week, but they end up deciding to crucify him. So uh, that's... That's kind of the context, that's what's going on in the background, and that's why maybe sometimes this set of events that we're reading about here maybe seem a little choppy, okay? So that's, that's the background. Um, so verses 55 through 59, uh, let's look at those again. It says, the chief priests and the whole council kept trying, to, kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Like, anybody got anything, right? 
They were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against them, but their testimony was not consistent. Okay? So, <laughs> what are these guys talking about? Because specifically what it says, what, what kind of gains some traction, it, it's, it sounds like in this room there's a lot of people saying, well, I, I saw him do this, or I heard him do this, but all of their testimony was conflicting, right? So that makes it <laughs> not seem trustworthy. But there's one piece here that kind of seems to gain a little bit of, of traction, enough to be mentioned, and that's the fact that somebody said, they heard Jesus say, if you tear down this temple made with hands, I'll make another one not made with hands, right? So uh, let's, let's, just, let's read that because the, the wording is very important. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands. I will destroy it, and in three days I will build another made without hands, okay? What are they talking about? What is, what is this even a reference to? Well, thankfully, John... In John 2, he lays this out for us. So this, John gives us the details of what these guys are referencing. Okay, so let me read that to you. John 2, starting in verse 18. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Okay, so this is John's account of when Jesus flips stuff in the temple, right? That's a fun one. All right, verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Do you hear what Jesus said? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now remember what the testimony was of those guys. It's important. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and yet you will raise it up in three days? But John, and you'll find this when you read the book of John, John oftentimes gives insight into kind of the, the, the inner thoughts, uh, or there's some, he'll give a little bit more background of what Jesus meant. Uh, here, so John clues us in going into verse 21. It says, here's John's explanation, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. So John's now giving us the explanation of what Jesus is talking about. So when he raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus has spoken, had spoken. Okay, So John tells us here, Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Notice, notice the subtle differences between what Jesus actually said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up, and what they said, right? What was it? Let's read it one more time. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. They added some words. Made with hands and made without hands, which meant they missed the point because John told us Jesus was referring to the temple of his body, but they, they added in this made with hands to make it seem as if Jesus was talking about destroying the temple in Jerusalem, okay? And that's what, that's what got people riled up. So those subtle differences, made with hands, made without hands, what, is that, what does that show us? Well, part of what it shows us is that, and this is true, I mean, this is true all the way around, all throughout. All the best deceptions... All of the best deceptions are woven with truth. All the best lies have some truth sprinkled in. And isn't that what they did here? Jesus did say something about the temple, but they just added a few words. Maybe, maybe, those, maybe others that had heard that wouldn't have even noticed those few words. Okay, But it helps to stir this thing up. And we, understanding that all the best deceptions are woven with truth, we... As followers of Jesus, we need to be wise 
And we need to be vigilant to make sure that we aren't sipping on sewer water that's been sweetened with sugar. Because that's very much what this is like. And it happens far more often than we'd probably like to think. Let's look at verses 60 through 65. The high priest stood up, came forward, and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. You shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This section, uh, 60 through 65, we'll read the rest in a minute. It it is easy to miss, but it is dripping with subtle and sad irony. In 60 through 62, we we see that Jesus was staying quiet, and that's because Jesus had no need to respond to the lies they were trying to use to incriminate him up to this point, right? Mark even tells us, everyone's shouting stuff out, all the accusations, stuff isn't lining up. Jesus had no reason up to that point to try to defend himself. They, They were doing enough of a job you know, themselves acquitting him with their lies. And and I think we also need to understand that if he had tried to explain the meaning of his words about the temple in that, for sure, in that very, like, hyper-emotional kind of mob-like setting, but in particular just because the folks there probably didn't have ears to hear, if he tried to explain what he meant when he made this comment about the temple, it's very likely they wouldn't have understood. So there was no point in, in, in Jesus wading into that. But... What gets him to talk is when the high priest, this is Caiaphas, asks him a direct question. And what we see here is that our king answered him plainly, okay, and in no uncertain terms. What did he say? We started with I am. And that's part of what ticked them off. You know why? Because in the Old Testament, God gave himself the name I am. And you got to be somebody if If Moses says, hey, Lord, who do I say sent me to Pharaoh? And all you have to say to describe who you are is, I am? What? That's got my attention. (laughs) There's only really one out there that can talk like that. It's the one who created all things. The word of his power. He says, I am. He goes on to say, you're going to see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So Jesus, now there's been, there's been hints, there's been, there's been things pointing to this, but this is, this is the point. This is the intersection of Christ's identity with it being, it being revealed to all that are there. Okay, all that, all that have been watching. They'd seen the miracles, they'd seen the triumphal entry. Some were kind of starting to get it. This is the definitive moment. They put him in the hot seat, and Jesus doesn't flinch. I am. That is who I am, the son of the blessed one. And, and here's, here's the irony that we may miss. The high priest here, with his foolish zeal to preserve the current power structure and to get rid of Jesus because he threatened it, right? We've been talking about that all through the book of Mark. Because of that foolishness, this high priest presumed himself qualified to judge our Lord. And Christ, in his answer, Let him know the day was coming when the roles would be reversed. 
And he would stand before Jesus as the judge of all the earth. This should have clipped his wings, homeboy Caiaphas, but it doesn't. He goes the opposite direction. We see that in 63 and 64. What's he do? How's he respond? Tearing his clothes, the high priest says, what further need do we have of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. It is, it is hard for us to be sure if this dramatic display was, and I mean him tearing his clothes, that, that, would, have been, that would have been commonly understood to be a sign of great anguish or anger, frustration, okay? I'm, I'm glad we've uh, not adopted that in our current cultural context, right? Like, you know, as soon as you're upset with somebody, you're out here Hulk Hogan and, you know, I'm glad that fell off, uh, at least here. Um, but that, it, it, people knew what that meant, okay? But it's hard for us to know if, if Caiaphas doing this was, was all kind of a part of the farce, or if he was, he was truly grieved enough by this answer to tear his clothes. I, I tend to think at least in part, at least in part, this, this was an act. It was, at least in part, it was meant to stir people into a frenzy of anger and disregard any need for further investigation or deliberation. It's like, let's, this... This hasn't gone so well so far. All the testimony's conflicting. You know, I'm asking this one question. This might be my one chance. So he, so he rips his clothes and gets real brick about it. So it puts everybody in a position of like, well, well the high priest just tore his clothes and he looks really angry, so I, I guess I probably should be too. And, and friends, why am, I, why am I belaboring this point? Because I want to say to you, in, in, in the same way that, that I warned you about effective deceptions being woven with truth today, that wasn't just true then, that's true now, can I also warn you that this same tactic is being often and effectively employed? This kind of dramatic over-display. There, there are many willing to exhibit very dramatic displays of anger and disdain to try to win you over to their way of thinking. But the problem is, with that, they don't want you to think at all. They want you to get caught up in the emotional fervor and then proceed accordingly. Now, if, if you're sitting where you're at right now and thinking, oh, I know, I know what he's talking about. He's talking about. He's talking about people on the left. Yeah, you're right, sometimes. But if you're also sitting here going, oh, I know, I know what he's talking about. He's talking about people on the right. Yeah, you're right, sometimes. It's all over the place, man. So just make sure you don't sit in the, the little political tribe that you tend to you know, be real excited about and think, oh yeah, he's hammering them. Because I'm hammering yours too. Amen? Everyone equally offended and upset? That's, that's all I wanted to make sure of. Okay, good. I want everybody frowning at this point of the sermon, okay? That's what we're after. <laughs> Amen. Uh, so that, that happens in... in in the political sphere, uh, and, and it happens elsewhere, and, and maybe in, in this way it's worse. I, I heard one of the most uh, influential pastors, and I use that word a, a bit loosely, uh, in America say something very close to the effect of, people may not remember what you said, 
but they will always remember how you made them feel. People may not remember what you said, but people will always remember how they made you feel. And let me say this before I say more about that. Our God is a feeling God, and we're made in his image. Emotions are not bad. They're a good gift from God. But if you let your emotions have the steering wheel in your life, your life is going to crash and burn at some point. The truth of God's word and his gospel must be the primary driver in our lives by the power of his spirit. Amen? Now back to the statement. I don't even care if that sweet, precious, little sentimental statement reflects reality for a lot of people. What was the statement? Well, most people, lots of people, probably won't remember what you said, but they'll always remember how you made them feel. Okay? That may reflect reality for a lot of people, but here's what we're not going to do. We're not just going to play into that and try to capitalize on how easy it may be to influence people emotionally. That's not, that's not what we're going to do. We're going to warn them of the dangers of living that way and call them to think as well as feel and to submit their thoughts and feelings to the truth of God's word. So, what does that mean for you and me? That means the next time the words, I just feel like, are about to escape, escape the word hole in the front of our faces, we should stop and soberly judge ourselves against these standards. And we need to realize that the most loving thing for God or for his people to do is to hold our feelings accountable to the truth. That's an act of love. That's an act of service. I realize it's not comfortable for everybody. It doesn't change the reality of the thing. Here's, here's what I want you to see. Maybe you're not liking this so far. I, I, I think by some of the, the masks make it tough, but by some eyebrows, I'm thinking, maybe there's a few out here not happy so far. Okay, think, I, I'm serious. I know what I'm saying is it, it cuts a bit, but think, will you think about this with me? These people, okay, Caiaphas, Hulk Hogan's, right? We see the blasphemy. What need do we have of further witnesses? We don't need to talk about this anymore. Look how emotional I am. These people around, because then what does it say? It says then everybody was like, yeah, let's kill him. Everybody standing there was convinced. These people were at least in part emotionally manipulated And they all felt like, hear me, they felt like Jesus deserved to die. Didn't they? Were they right? This will be the easiest pop quiz question all day. Did Jesus deserve to die, Love City Church? But didn't they feel like he did? Uh Uh-oh. So what do we learn from that? Well, (laughs) we learn lots of things. Really, but the one thing I want us to focus on is that we need to admit that we are also susceptible. We are susceptible to emotional manipulation. We are. You and I. Me. You. I think that'd be good for us to say. Why don't you say this after me? I can be, go ahead, let me hear you say that. I can be 
emotionally manipulated. Go ahead and say that. You can, man. It's good for you to know that about yourself. You're not bulletproof to it. Oh, well, I'm pretty stoic. It, it doesn't matter, man. Me too. And I can be emotionally manipulated. We all can. You've got to watch out for it. Sometimes we whip ourselves into an emotional frenzy. Sometimes other people are involved. And even our enemy, the devil, will use this tactic to steer us off course. We need to know this. You've got to watch out for that. Now, let me be crystal clear here. I am not saying that feelings are invalid. I'm not even saying that feelings are unimportant. The way that we feel oftentimes reflects truth. And it can even help us to discover truth. I mean all of that. For those of you whose eyebrows are still furrowed, are, are you still listening? I'm flipping this coin over now. It's important that we do this. All of that I just said is true, but... The idea that someone's saying they feel a certain way should be the deciding factor for determining what is true is not only deceptive, it's dangerous. Amen. This does not in any way mean we as followers of Jesus disregard the emotions of others. As a matter of fact, we should be Followers of Jesus, we should be the best listeners and the most empathetic people on the planet. Why do I say that? That's a big statement. Why? Well, at least, I don't know, maybe top of the heap reason, we serve a God who became a man in part so that he could identify with the struggles of the human experience. We have a God who went to incredible lengths in order to understand us, and in order to experience what we experience, to be able to empathize with us. Thankfully, we have a high priest who understands what it means to be tempted. I hope that means something to you. If it doesn't yet, then keep thinking about it more. Pray about it more, because it matters deeply. The, the last piece of, of gut-wrenching irony is found in verse 65. Let's look at that again. <sighs> This is hard to read. <clears throat> Some begin to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. What do we see? Right here we see Jesus, the eternal Son of God, allowed his own creation to spit on him with mouths that he formed and to strike him with hands that he made and to mock him and challenge him to prophesy when little did they know he already had. Let me read this to you from just a couple chapters back. It should sound familiar. Mark 10, 33, the words of Christ. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and three days later he will rise from the dead. He had already prophesied with excruciating detail about what was happening right here. There's a sick irony to that. Isaiah 5, 6 Long before this time frame, 
I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I did not hide my face from insults and spitting. This had been prophesied. How ironic that they would blindfold him and punch him and jeer at him to prophesy, tell him who did it. He'd already spoken prophecy about this exact moment. If only they'd known. If only they could have seen. As we transition from verse 65, the focus now turns to Peter's experience during this time. And and, and I just want to quickly point out a, a profound truth that we've witnessed in all of this thus far. Uh, Pastor Jordan covered for us last week the fact that, that Jesus told Peter to put away his sword after he cut off the guy's ear during the arrest. Okay, uh, Mark didn't tell us specifically it was Peter, but we know that from other gospel accounts. Uh, I'm going to get into more as we unpack this, how profoundly confusing it had to have been for Jesus, uh, or for Peter, to pull his sword and to cut this guy's ear off and for Jesus to tell him, that's not our way. That's not the way we're doing this. But, but I, want to, I want you to see that the lesson that Jesus had always been teaching, but in particular, it came into magnified focus with that experience, that, that it's continuing now as Jesus is mistreated here. So when Jesus told Peter to sheath the sword, there's a continuation of the lesson that Peter should be picking up on here as Jesus is abused and mistreated. That lesson is gentleness. It's gentleness. I was joking earlier about the men's group having arm wrestling, and I just want to say clearly that was a joke. So if you're a guy here and you're like, oh, cool, a men's group. Ooh, I don't know if I want to arm wrestle. That's probably not going to happen, okay? If it does, it'll be me and Sean, and he'll win, okay? So it'll be fine. You won't have to do it. But I I am joking. I'm I'm joking about that, and and what I want to say, what I want to make sure is very clear, and I want to make sure you guys know this is something we're going to talk about a lot as we gather men together to try to form and shape them into the image of Christ One of the primary marks of biblical manhood is not being macho. It's being gentle. And here's the problem. Here's why that doesn't hit our ears maybe like it should. That's why for some of us we're like, well, hold on. That doesn't doesn't quite sound right. A primary marker of biblical manhood being gentleness? Well, here's our problem. Too often we confuse gentleness with weakness. What we oftentimes fail to realize is that restraining strength in service of others, is what it means to be gentle. Okay, You can't be gentle if you're weak. If you're weak, you're just weak. You're not a threat. But to be strong and to restrain that strength in the service of others is the biblical definition of gentleness. And, and I want you to make no mistake, friends. If Jesus had exerted one trillionth of his might in retaliation against this abuse, he could have vaporized them all. Like that. But instead, instead, he focused that strength on the task of enduring the pain and humiliation, knowing that his sacrifice would pave the way for wretches like you and me to be saved by grace through faith. That's strength. That's strength. Anybody can lash out. Anybody can bro out and tear their clothes and try to act tough. But to be treated like this and to respond in gentleness, 
out of service to us? I mean, I, I hope when you read the account of the abuse of Jesus here, and, and it's, it's going to continue, it's going to get worse, I'm, I am hoping it gets to you emotionally. I'm hoping you feel something about that. I think we should. Verses 66 through 72, as I told you, we're going to end here with a, a the, the, the camera kind of pans in here to Peter's experience very, very acutely, okay? As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servants girl, servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with Jesus the Nazarene, but he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. That was like a very official phrase, you would say. It almost had some legal weight behind it to say, look, I got... I got no idea what you're talking about, okay? And he employed that. So it was very, very kind of official the way he said it. And he went out into the porch. The servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, this is one of them. But he again denied it. And after a little while, while the bystanders were again saying to Peter, surely you're one of them. You're a Galilean too. But he began to curse and swear. I do not know this man you're talking about. And immediately a rooster crowed a second time. Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him. Before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. <clears throat> I'm, I'm going to float this idea to you. I, I, think, I think we often are, are far too harsh in our appraisal of Peter's actions here. And, and I want to say this. I'm not excusing his denial of Christ, okay? It's pitiful and it's cowardly. But I'm going to ask you to consider with me for a moment the circumstances under which this happened and how often we may be tempted in a similar way with far less difficulty. Okay? If you go back to verse 31 of the same chapter here, okay? Peter said this phrase to Jesus, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. My question to you is, do you read, do you see in what we just read, this triple denial of Peter, do you see that as evidence that Peter didn't mean what he said? I believe that would be the wrong conclusion. I believe, actually, it's clear that he meant it. How do I say that? Because when the group of soldiers came to the Mount of Olives, Peter was the only one that drew a sword and was ready to fight. And I can't imagine the odds looked very good. Jesus and his 12 guys and this whole troop of soldiers, you got, you got the high priest, you got, a, but it's a mob, man. And, and looking at those numbers, this is Peter, man. This is your boy that sees Jesus, uh, you know, out on the water. He's the one that's like, yeah, I'll try that. Right? A little impulsive. Consistently got his foot in his mouth. But let me say this in case I forget to say it. Also the guy that Jesus chose to be the leader of his disciples. Because look, man, there's, 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 a, there's, a, point where, there's a point where knowing knowing what to do, knowing what is right, knowing all the doctrines, it, it only gets you so far. At some point you've got to do something about it. Okay? So Peter's the only one that... Against these odds, he's like, yup. What, what did he say to Jesus? What did I just read to you? Even if I have to die, I will not deny you. What do you really think was going on in Peter's mind? Is he's like, all right, 
as he goes for the first ear within reach. He was ready to die next to his master if a battle broke out. He was ready to rock and roll. Okay? But what happens? The problem here was God's plan was way different than what Peter could have possibly imagined. I, 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 I would say Peter already played out in his mind, if this ends up with me laying in a puddle of my own blood, defending the master, run it. I'm here for it. What he could have never possibly anticipated is when he did exactly what he thought he should do in order to keep the oath he gave his king, that I, would, I will die before I deny you. That as he pulled his sword and went to strike the enemy, that Jesus looked over him and said, put that away. That's not how this is going to go. That's not our way. And then heals the guy. He couldn't have possibly seen that coming. And I believe that threw him into a state of confusion uh, that I can, have, I can have grace. I can understand. When I try to emotionally put myself in the place Peter was in, I could see myself responding very closely to the way he did. I mean, I, I have the benefit of hindsight. We also have to remember that, you know, Peter had only seen what had happened up to this point. He didn't have the rest, okay? But we know that Peter believed Jesus was the Christ. He was the one who said it out loud. When Jesus said, hey, who are people saying that I am? Peter was the one that said, you're, you're the kid of Christ. You're the son of God. Peter just couldn't imagine how one, with all the power Jesus had, would yield himself to the evil intentions of the mob. He couldn't, how, how can this be God's will? How can this be right? And I'm asking you to try to imagine the hurt and the confusion, the sense of betrayal Peter must have felt when he pulled that sword to keep his oath, that he would stand with Jesus whatever may come, and then Jesus tells him to put it away. And what are we, what am I, why am I driving down on this? Because, friends, Peter was only one in a long line of folks disappointed with God when things don't play out the way they hoped. This leads us, it should, to an opportunity for some humble self-examination. Here's a couple questions I want us to ask ourselves. How do we respond when things don't go as planned? I'm not even talking about maybe that we're conscious at this moment or thinking about a, a, a sovereign, eternal level plan of God just when things don't go as you planned. How do we respond? How do we respond when, let's make it a little harder, God doesn't do what he, we thought he would or think he should. How do we respond when God doesn't do what we thought he would or that we think he should? How do we respond? Some of you, some of you may know this. It's, it's a pretty, pretty profound example of, of this principle in my own life, so I've pulled from it before. But, so if you've heard it before, forgive me, but there may be some that haven't, and I think it's pertinent. So in, in, uh, in my early 20s, I... I I started investing in real estate. I had some partners, and it was going really well. And we did that for three or four years, uh, starting in, in like 04, 05. And uh, we, 
had a bunch of rental property. And so I'm, and it's, it's a pertinent point that I'm in my early 20s, started around like 21, okay? And so after a few years, we've got a couple million dollars worth of property. Things are going really good, rocking and rolling. Uh, you know, I'm going, to, I'm going to these real estate conferences, sitting at these tables uh, as a young man. And I got, I got doctors and lawyers, you know, they just kind of sit people at these conferences, you know, whatever, you know, people from all over the country. And, the, you know, for some reason, everybody wants to invest in real estate. They've watched a late night infomercial. I don't know. Every, Chip and Joanna Gaines gets them, you know, gets them all excited about it. I don't know. But everyone, everyone wants to flip a house. Everyone wants to own rental property. So maybe you don't. Maybe you're smart. But <laughs> anyways, a lot of people do. So I, I'd be sitting there, and I'm, you know, 22, 23 years old, and I got these guys double my age, super successful, just eating out of my hand as I'm explaining. Because all of them are at the conference. They want to find out, well, how do you invest in real estate? I'm really excited about trying to do it. And, I'm, and, and we're doing it. You know, so they're like, oh, how does this, da, da, da. And, and then all of a sudden, in 2008, one day things are rocking and rolling. I, I mean, it, it, was, it was incredible. It was working. It was awesome. People, anybody looking at it objectively would have said, oh, wow, that, that looks successful. And then the next day, every credit market in America froze, locked up, so we couldn't continue in, in the process that we were acquiring property. And at the very same time, this is 08, so some of you are like, what does that mean? Some of you are like, oh yeah, I remember 08, <laughs> right? Probably depends on, a little bit on your age. All, at, at the exact same time, all the market rents, in particular in this area, dropped 30 to 40%. And so, all of a sudden, we couldn't, we couldn't grow through the thing by using credit. We couldn't, our, our cash flow just bottomed out because of the drop in rents. And an important detail that you need to know is the reason I was in this business, the reason I had started investing in real estate, I had this dream in my heart that I wanted to invest in enough rental property, and, with, and I had partners involved as well, and they had similar dreams, that we could get to the point where we had enough rental income coming in that we could, we could then do ministry full-time and not have to receive a paycheck. That was the goal. That was, we talked about it. was the stated goal of why we poured blood, sweat, and tears for three or four years into this business. And then all of a sudden, I found myself sitting in front of seven or eight different bankers trying to explain to them at 24 years old, (laughs) uh, we got a problem. Now, thankfully, by the grace of God, I was able to negotiate with every one of those banks. We came to an agreeable solution, which involved us turning the properties over to them, we would lose all of the equity that we had built up by rehabbing them, uh, but we got no, there was no foreclosure, no bankruptcy, and so I, I praise God for that. And and even in that, one of the banks that I was, we were handing these properties back to in the same meeting hired me then to manage those properties and the rest of the properties they were having dumped on them by everybody else because we weren't the only people in this boat. So God was gracious and provided through the whole thing. My point is. Uh, the, name, the, the name of our primary LLC was Inheritance Investors. The dream in my heart was to do this for a long time, was to hand these things off to my kids, okay? And that was, that was a crushing redirection uh, for me at 24 years old. That was not the plan. And it was tough for me because I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, look, you know, I'm serving, in, I'm serving the church. I'm, I'm in ministry at that point. Pouring our gut, Natalie and I are pouring our guts out into that. We, we've sacrificed, try to make this business go. We've got this goal of, 
of being able to now you know, do full-time ministry for the rest of our lives and not ever need to be paid by a church. That would be awesome. We could be a blessing to more people. That, that was all there, and then the thing, the thing just crumbled. It's like, that was pretty hard for me to reconcile. Like, God, how could this be the plan? What went wrong here? Thankfully, with the benefit of hindsight, I can I could now, and I don't have time to get into all of it, but I could, I could name you five to ten different things that for sure I know God did in the midst of that process. Important things for my formation as a man of God. One, not least of which was humbling me. Because at 24 years old, having that level of perceived success, uh, it gets to your head. And humility is really, really important. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Um, I can't afford to be opposed by God. <laughs> I need him pushing me along from the back and helping me, <laughs> not standing in front of me. So, but I just, I just want you to know, and I'm trying to be honest with you, about the temptation that I had to be disappointed with God as I went through that experience. Because I couldn't figure out, the arithmetic didn't work for me. Like, where, where's the disconnect here? How could this happen when this is what we were doing and why we were doing it? And, and I think that leads us to maybe one of the more, more, most important questions that I've asked you, and that's this. How do we respond when we do doubt God? How do we respond when in our disappointment we end up denying him and we end up in sin? Because that's, that's the difficult reality on the backside of this. And, and my answer to you, friends, when we find ourselves in that place, maybe, maybe you didn't have as much of, of a kind of life-shattering, earth-crushing experience as I just described with you know, all my hopes and dreams kind of overnight just being crushed. Maybe you haven't had that, but I, I would suspect that you've had some points in your life where you were tempted to be disappointed with God or thought he should have done something different and he didn't and felt yourself Felt the confusion that comes with that. So what do we do? What do we do when we realize then that that's the place we've found ourselves and that we're in sin as a result? We remember the gentleness of Jesus and we realize that his desire is always to lovingly restore us. Let me read you. This, this is an account of, of Jesus restoring Peter after his traitorous denial. I'm in John 21. Now when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. And then he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Friends, I want to ask you if you see the intentionality of Jesus here. How many times did Peter deny Christ? Three. How many chances did Jesus give Peter to turn that around and to declare how he truly felt? Gave him three. That is a picture into the precious patience of our God. 
And so if you have found yourself disappointed with the circumstances of life, if you have found yourself potentially even shaking your fist at God, and today, as we read this account, maybe you're there now. And then, and then what Satan tries to do if he can't keep you trapped in discontentment and disappointment with God, what he'll do then is try to drag you down into the condemnation once you realize that that's where you've been. And friends, what I want you to see is the gentle nature of our master. That even with this treasonous betrayal by Peter, that this is how Jesus deals with him. Doesn't give him just one shot to recant that denial, but three. It's a gracious act of love and mercy to his friend. Like Peter, we have all been tempted to turn our backs on God when things don't go like we think they should. All of us have been tempted in that way. And like Caiaphas, we've all been foolish enough to think we had a right to judge God's will and his ways. All of us, in different ways, have lived as if we had the right to live however we please. And yet, Christ died in our place so we can be forgiven even of sins as treacherous as these. And I expect there's people on two extremes listening to what I'm saying right now. You may be somebody that you're reading this account of Peter's treason and you're thinking to yourself, I've never done anything that comes anywhere close to that. And what I want to say to you, friends, is every single time you have chosen to disobey God rather than obey God, it is a declaration of your autonomy. It is a declaration of the fact that you know better than he does. Every time we sin against God, it's a declaration that rises to the level of this denial. We all have sinned in this way. And so for, for that person, I want you to know you're not exempt from this. And so humble yourself before God today. But there may be also people in this room today that know very well they've sinned in this way and may be sitting in guilt and shame for it right now. And to you, dear friend, I want you to hear. I want you to consider the way Jesus dealt with Peter in restoring him and know that he wants to restore you too. If you'll come to him and trust him, he'll be gentle with you. And he'll love you through it. Not only will God forgive you and restore you if you'll trust him, but as he did with Peter, he will use, this is huge, listen to me. He will use your failures to form you into something even more beautiful and useful than you could have ever been without them. Did you hear what I said? He will use your failures to form you into something even more beautiful you could have ever been without them. There's so much hope in that. And we see the reality of it throughout the scriptures. It is the promise of God that he will work all things for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. That includes, friend, even your frailty and your failures. And so take heart. There's hope today. The question for us is will we believe him? Has, has he shown us enough of his power and patience to entrust our lives completely to him today? And there is no doubt he has, friends. And I, I hope, above all else, that we will entrust ourselves to him today. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for uh, these verses. Thank you. Uh, for your long-suffering patience and your gentleness. Thank you uh, for showing us what that looks like. Uh, and thank you for giving us the promise of, of your Holy Spirit to, to help us because these things aren't natural. Uh, Lord, we do want to walk in the gentleness of your Spirit. We know that that's part of how 
We are salt and light in this world, part of how we reflect your goodness and beauty into this world. And we thank you, Lord, for the hope that only your gospel can provide as, as the weight of the reality today that we have all sinned in this way, that through, through our rebellion, through our decisions, and, and, and every time we've thought we knew better than you, that we have effectively denied you, that we have said, no, we're going to rule ourselves. We don't need you. Lord, as, as we sit with that and we realize that, <laughs> we are full of repentance but at the same time full of hope because we see you're a God of restoration. We see that it is your desire not to, not to hold us down and to pummel us over our sins, but that you allowed yourself to be held down and to be pummeled so that we could have hope today, so we could have life today, so we could walk in freedom today. And so we're thankful we're thankful for all of your sacrifice. We're thankful for what this means for us today. I pray for every single person within the sound of my voice, whether they're here or they're joining through the live stream, that, that is struggling with disappointment about what God has done or what they think he should do. Lord, I ask that you would come in all of your gentle but mighty power and set them free from that deception and cultivate them, in them a trust, an ability to rest in you. Lord, I pray that for all of us. We need that. We, we do not have the right to stand in judgment of you or your will or your ways. You are God and we are not. And we submit joyfully to that truth. We love you, Master. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.